It's time to become a member of Playvolution HQ and Exploration's Early Learning. There's a free option and three paid patron-level options. All come with free stuff and ongoing automatic training and merch discounts. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. That supports our work, and you get premium stuff like early access to fresh podcast episodes. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash membership or click the link in this episode's description to learn more. All the cool listeners are doing it. On with the show. Hey, Jeff here. Just a little note about what you're about to hear. The Early Learning Journeys podcast used to be a standalone show I did with Tamar Jacobson. We decided to roll that show into the Child Care Bar and Grill and are releasing the 14 episodes that we did as standalone shows into the Bar and Grill feed so that they'll be here. Uh, also, stay tuned for fresh episodes of that show as tomorrow and I record them. Plus, tomorrow's going to pop on for non-interview episodes now and again as time allows. So uh, we're glad to have her aboard. So here's the episode. Welcome to Early Learning Journeys, Jeff Johnson here with Tamar Jacobson. How are you doing, Tamar? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Jeff? I am delightful. It's a beautiful, chilly day here in Iowa. We have got a guest for you today, listeners. Dan Hodgins is... Well, I was thinking about this when I was out with the dogs this morning, how to introduce Dan. Dan Hodgins is a, a man that, uh, that women and men love and want to be, <laughs> except, for the, except for the ones that don't. Because one of the things about Dan is he, he pushes buttons and he pushes people and he pushes ideas. And sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. And uh, Dan can, uh, can kind of shake people's bones uh, when it comes to early learning and probably other topics. And uh, that's one of the things some of us love about him. But I, I think there is probably a segment of the early learning population who just wish Dan would uh, be quiet and go away and not talk about those things. Right. Is <laughs> it fairly accurate, Dan? Good morning. Yes, it is. You <laughs> forgot that I'm losing hair and I pee more. <laughs> well, if, if that's true, Jeff, then he's my kind of guy. He, I, I think he is your kind of guy. And I think as we uh, interview him, you're going to find that more and more. Um, so, so Dan, I've, I've had the opportunity to learn early childhood stuff from Dan, but also the, the thing I've learned most from Dan is, is how to be a better presenter because Dan owns the room when he presents and, uh, and he just puts it all out there. And um, I've, I've really learned a lot from, from him watching him and uh, having the opportunity to actually share the stage with him a couple times, which really puts my, my feelings of imposter syndrome into, into play because uh, uh, when you're when you're up there with Dan, you you don't feel worthy, and it's and and uh, not not sucking up to Dan. That's just that's just the way it is. Um, Dan, let's jump in. Where do you where does your early learning journey begin? We want to start way back at the beginning. What what was childhood like for you? What kind of kid were you? I was loved by my mother and 
not so loved by my father because I didn't follow the uh, track that he had in mind for me. And that was the more traditional male um, avenue, uh, making, you know, loving sports, going into the military, et cetera. And, uh, and so my mother adored me. So I was allowed to do a whole lot of stuff that I might not have been able to do without um, her allowing me to do that. So I was that kind of kid who was adventurous, um, who uh, I was the only person in the family until my sister went to college, uh, wanted to go, always wanted to go and, and played with a lot of imaginary kinds of things when I was, was really young. And, and, and I, I was really Jeff compliant compared to when I went to college and then changed. I mean, I went to church uh, twice a week. I uh, didn't swear. I, uh, I did all those things that you were supposed to do to be like, I took flowers to my teachers. Often they were stolen from people's yards, <laughs> <laughs> but I took them because that's what I thought they wanted me to do and in my day there was chalkboards and I was the person that always asked the teacher if I could uh, wash it off for her um, and so I got really good grades in school not because I was necessarily smart I figured out the system early I figured out what teachers and other people wanted so um, uh, I was really liked. <laughs> um, as a child. Now, if my mother had asked me, do you, we're going to have a, you're going to have a brother, which is that all right? I would have said no, uh, <laughs> because I was getting all the attention. And then my brother, who was one year younger than me, came along and I'm thinking, wait a minute here. Um, I don't like you. <laughs> so it took a long time for my brother and I to develop a relationship and part of the reason for that was I knew what people wanted and my brother didn't. So everybody liked me, uh, but they didn't necessarily um, like my brother as well. So it took a while for us uh, to get out of that whole sibling rivalry thing. What was the, you, you, you mentioned your dad was, was the, the personality conflict there. Was that, was that just kind of out there in the open or was that kind of a under the surface kind of, we just don't get each other kind of thing? No, it was out in the open, but you know what? I'm a better, I was a better father uh, because my father uh, showed me what I didn't want to be. Um, and, and it's not that I didn't care for my father. It's just that we never had um, as close a relationship as I did with my mother, but it was pretty open. My brother followed my father's track. Um, and so he was worshiped by my father. <laughs> um, Dan, you were talking about you played a lot of imaginary things. Yes. What sort of imaginary things? I played teacher a lot. Uh -huh. I would grab all the neighborhood kids and we would come together. And I was the teacher who shook my finger and who <laughs> made them recite the ABCs and all the stuff that at that time I thought you needed to do 
uh, to be a good teacher. The other thing, I love to play circus. Um, and, I, and I would pretend, get people to pretend to be different animals. Or we would get our cats and dogs and dress them up. Um, and make them do things that they didn't want to do. Uh, <laughs> and, but it, you know, and, and that's, I think, the beginning of my stage presence. Because uh, uh-huh. there's a part of me that always has enjoyed the theater and like to have been part of it. So, um, you know, like Jeff mentioned earlier, when I'm on stage, um, it's like a performance in some cases. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I feel the same way. I have exactly the same feeling. And you know, that's why the Zoom is so difficult for me at the beginning, because you depend on the audience to spark where you're going. And <laughs> and I'm just beginning, because I'm doing a lot of them now, but I'm just beginning to realize that I can do some of that still on zoom but it's not the same it's got to have a live audience yeah it's really challenging um i what 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 found what worked for me is i is i set things up so i can be standing up and moving which made made it a little bit easier easier for me with the zoom stuff but it's still it's still not the same as being being in in the presence of actual human human beings but yeah it's the word we're gonna live in for at least a little while longer i guess I think so, probably longer than I wanted to. <laughs> so you, you mentioned you were just automatically a good student. You were good at um, chameleon-like, good at kind of just fitting in and, and doing what was expected. What Were there any topics that you were particularly interested in? At that time, um, I was interested in history. Um, and, and so I, I began to travel early. I was eight. And I was out there visiting different countries um, in that. And uh, so I was always interested in that component. And I'm a, I've always been a people watcher. So I learned how to observe through observing. How, yeah. how does an eight-year-old get to start traveling internationally? I want well, to ask the same question. <laughs> I, I found somebody who liked to travel that was an adult and got them to take them, me with them <laughs> um, and started in Canada because a lot of my mom's relatives are Canadian and lived in Canada. So I started there and then thought, well, I really like this, but now I want to see other things. So um, that's what I did is I just found somebody that um, liked to travel. <laughs> When you're eight and you find someone who likes to travel, how do you actually do that? Well, uh, you manipulate them (laughs) into thinking you are the best traveling mate possible. (laughs) At age eight. At age eight. I was really good at it. Really good at um, uh, helping people think that um, they needed me. (laughs) Uh, and, you know, and, and so part of it was making sure that I uh, got their coffee, making sure that um, they had clean clothes, all of those kinds of things, uh, which I knew a traveling mate um, wanted. And uh, because I was excited about where we went, uh, he um, or sometimes she would just uh, enjoy um, helping me learn. 
I, I mm-hmm. love that. There's a great value in that. Dan, you just got me thinking about this. When my, when my granddaughter was the three, four, five age range, she used to go with me to a lot of conferences and uh, I, I drove to a lot of them. And, and she was a great, great traveling companion because she had a, a incredible bladder. I'd be like worrying, oh, we, we're not going to make good time. I got to stop over because you're going to need to pee every 15 minutes. She would, she would ride for six, eight hours without, she's like, you need to, need to stop. No, Papa, I'm good. And, uh, and so I, I think she had a little bit of that Dan gene in her um, about, <laughs> about wanting to see the world and, yeah. and being able to fit in and, and make that happen. That's awesome. And then what I did with my daughter um, started to grow and, and when she would start learning a particular country or culture that summer, my wife and I would take her to the place that she was studying and, um, and she got the travel bug um same as me and so off she went and did her thing and now she for 21 years she's lived in tokyo japan and and loves it so i we kind of knew that she was gonna um not live in the u.s (laughs) uh and part of that is learning and enjoying and being around other people and that's what i uh liked about the traveling component is is meeting and and it made me a better citizen <laughs> uh, because I learned what I didn't have or did have in some cases. So, yeah. As a, as a child traveling, was it in the beginning, was it interesting to go to another place or was it just great to get out of your house? <laughs> uh, both. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved getting out of the house. Um and, and at the same time, um, I enjoyed um, where I was going and the adventure of it uh, was really exciting to me. Yeah. So learning something new. Uh, and you know what? I still have the same bug. I like to learn and travel. And this has been hard on me lately because I've not been able to get on a plane to go uh, somewhere. So, uh, uh, and I usually make a plan to do um, some kind of trip. And you were growing up in Michigan? Started in Michigan, then Maine, and now Florida. Yes, yeah. But most of my schooling in that was in Michigan. So what were you, what kind of, uh, what kind of high school kid were you? I hated high school. Uh, <laughs> because? I was, I was a nerd, um, and nerds get treated differently than an unnerd. Um, because again, uh, I wasn't doing the quote boy high school thing. That doesn't mean, um, I didn't get into some trouble in high school. Um, but generally high school was not, uh, my thing. I didn't learn a whole lot in high school and, and didn't like the atmosphere of high school. Matter of fact, when I turned 50, I invited all of my high school teachers who were alive uh, to my birthday party. And I told them to bring their curriculum because I couldn't remember a thing that I heard <laughs> in my school. And we had an absolute ball. I learned that I had five years of French and I don't know how that's possible because I only went to high school four years and I still can't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, Yeah, high school was not my favorite uh, time. Elementary school, I loved. I loved all my teachers. Um, Then high school hit, and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't like this. Uh, And then 
loved college. Were, were you still getting good grades in the high school years, yeah. even though you didn't like it? Absolutely. Because remember, I didn't give up um, knowing how and what the teachers uh, wanted. So uh, that, that might have evolved over the years, but you were, you were good at, at yes. jumping through those hoops. Yes, yes. And then I hit college and realized, oh, they're not playing the game. They know what I'm doing. So that changed. So in uh, my understanding of children and also myself, because um, I, I developed very good observation skills uh, as a child, I, I, I tend to think that it's, it helps us survive because uh, of what's going on in the home. We need to know what people are feeling and thinking so that we can feel safe within that parameter. And so what, was, it, was it tense in your, in your house as you were growing up? I mean, were there issues with, like, were your parents friendly to each other? My parents were friendly towards each other, but more like friends uh-huh. than lovers uh-huh. or uh, intimate. Uh, we didn't see a whole lot of um, uh, kissing, hugging, not that that is the only thing that defines a no, love. No. That wasn't publicly displayed. Part of that was the culture I was living in, and part of it was the generation. Another part of it was, a, that was just my parents. Um, yeah. And that was a part that I had to learn because that's not what I was used to was displaying. Uh, and I'm still not the best hugger uh, because it's just not something I'm um, interested or necessarily feel a value. Mm-hmm. Um, in and I do it because I'm in a field of huggers <laughs> <laughs> and when you back away from them they chase you <laughs> you can't get away from the hugging <laughs> so does it make you uncomfortable actually I'm sorry does it make you uncomfortable actually uh, it doesn't it doesn't make me uncomfortable but I don't uh, it's a good statement I think it's probably more of a it's not how I I would I'm a talker so it's easier for me to talk to somebody about relationships than it is to demonstrate it still in public because again that's not I was I wasn't modeled to do that so it it might not make you uncomfortable that's not something you actively seek out correct absolutely yes Um, And, and and were you like that with your children too uh, good question. Uh, I had to practice um, displaying affection. I, I really had to practice it with, we only have one child, Jennifer, my daughter. Uh, and so, but I had to practice uh, that because again, it wasn't something I was modeled um, as a parent. So why did you have to practice that? Uh, what, what, what made you want to practice that? Why would you want to do it if it wasn't what you were used to? I thought it was socially acceptable. Um, I also um, dearly loved and still do my daughter. And okay. we have quite a relationship. Um, so I had to figure out, uh, and she wanted that kind of expression, so I had to figure out how to do that without being fake. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because yeah. at first I practiced it in a pretend way. Um, and then I had to learn um, how to do it in a natural way. 
such an important issue, actually, because in our field, you know, I'm sure there's so many early learning educators who have the same upbringing or similar upbringings, and they don't really know how to hug or, or get close to children in that manner. Right. And I think young children are a, a way to practice mm-hmm. um, because it's so comfortable for me to have children sitting in my lap reading a story. It's so comfortable for me to carry them around. Um, it's so comfortable, you know, it's in, in the, they provided that avenue. Yeah. That was safe. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. what made you go into that avenue? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I, I used to start by saying I was needed money to go to college. And I had a water safety certificate as a lifeguard. And the YMCA not, uh, wanted uh, someone to teach uh, moms and babies swimming. At that point, it was everybody was into getting babies to swim before they could walk (laughs) kind of thing. So I needed the money and thought, oh, I don't know about this, but I took it and um, loved working with the babies, hated working with the moms (laughs) 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 because they just drove me nuts, (laughs) you know, because at that point, you're trying to let a young child take a risk of swimming on their own and they're they're screaming at you and and all that kind of component but it was that experience that changed the direction because I was going to be a social worker um slash minister because that's what my mom wanted me to be um and uh that but that swimming lesson um changed my uh, direction in terms of how I and what I wanted to do uh, when I went to college. I wanted to be, quote, a teacher. Why did your mother want you to be those other things? My mom was extremely religious. She was a Southern Baptist. Um, and so she wanted me to go to church. And so I did. Uh, And I was so good at learning what the minister wanted um, that the minister at the church wanted me to be involved in lots of things. So I was Joseph every single Christmas uh, in the (laughs) major play. Um, And, you know, those kinds of things. And so she thought, um, and I was baptized several times because I love being submerged in the water. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've always been a water baby. I'm Sagittarius. So, you know, seven times, I think, um, I was baptized. And I thought, well, maybe after the second one, this isn't working. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so I thought, well, I'm social work minister. They kind of go together. And so I was going to, that's the direction um, I was heading. Plus, I thought to be a good person you needed to be really godly uh, in terms of that component. Yeah, you, just... you're, you're how old at this time? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I was probably 16 when I decided um, that I should be a minister and a social worker. I, I, was, I was wondering if your mother saw in you a sort of compassionate 
her piece. And that's yeah. why she thought you might be a good minister or social worker. No, to be honest, I'd love to say that that's true, but it's not true. The reason she wanted me to be a minister is because then people would say to her, oh, your son is a minister. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So it would give her acknowledgement and recognition, which yeah. sometimes she needed. Yeah. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to say that she did that because she saw, I saw the compassion, but I, I don't really think that she did. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It would be lovely to ask her, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think part of, and both of my parents have passed, but part of it is recognizing the needs um, as I got older that they had also. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Dur during those late teen years, a, a lot of our guests have uh, have mentioned that they, they uh, their first their first experience with uh, early childhood of some form was, was babysitting for neighbors and that kind of thing. Did you do any of that? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> I mean, I was somewhat realistic. I love being around children was really good at them, but I wanted them from a distance uh -huh. uh, at, at high school. I, that was something that I just was not uh, crazy about until I got the job, you know, at the Y and then, then things changed. Um, cause I thought the best way to be a good teacher is to teach. And of course I don't believe that now, but that's what I thought, um, at that time. And it made me feel good because people seemed to like my style of, mm -hmm. of teaching. Well, I mean, that was the way we were taught when we were young, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I remember as, as a child when I would have a, a sick day and stay home in bed, I had a black African nanny because I grew up in Africa yes. and she would give me books to read in my bed and I would take a, a pencil and correct things in the book like my teacher used to do. I'd strike out a word and say incorrect, redo, things yes. like that. We were taught very strict, I think. Yeah. And look how much power that gave us. <laughs> 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 yeah. Did you have places in those late teen years where you where you felt powerful in your life aside from teaching that class? Uh, I was a member of the Future Teachers Association and became president within a week. Um, first of all, because the group was small and nobody wanted that. <laughs> <laughs> and what we did is we visited colleges. Um, and, and to take a look at it and, and talk to the teachers groups at colleges. And that, again, uh, was an exciting part for me because I got to travel on a bus. Um, but and also got to meet people that I thought, hmm, I could do this. This sounds good. It's, it's something I want to do. So, you know, I, I joined groups like that. I was in the Honor Society. Um, you know, those kinds of things that uh, matched what I wanted to, to do at that point. During, during the, your, your, you know, your first 15, 20 years, were you a, a risk taker? No. Um, I was taught to just be compliant. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wasn't a risk taker, Jeff, until I was in college Actually, I was a sophomore in college when I realized there's a different world out there and I don't have to um, live the way 
I always thought you had to behave. And the reason for that is I lived with some um, professors who were sociologists who had a four-year-old daughter that wanted somebody to care for her while they were teaching. And they opened up the whole world uh, for me. And then I rebelled and completely went the opposite direction. Um, didn't go home, didn't talk to my parents, um, rebelled, um, grew my hair down to my waist, never wore shoes, um, all those kinds. <laughs> Uh, Dan, are there are there pictures of? Uh, uh, I knew you were gonna ask. Are there pictures of hippie Dan out there? And believe it or not, some people have posted some pictures that I forgot about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I sure might, I might have to put a call out looking for those that we can share with this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I I picture you as that that long haired Adonis, just just ripped lifeguard type dude. Yeah, is that who you were? <laughs> No, no, no. I had more of a, oh, um, bohemian style <laughs> look with the long tie and dye shirts and, and uh, uh, all those kinds of components. And that was, of course, during the Vietnam War, Saga 2, and, and that created a different rebellion um, also. Sure. Um, more like a hippie. In me. Very much hippie, um, yeah. and uh, that's when I started to get failing grades uh, because I wouldn't attend classes in college. Where in early years, I never missed a day of school because I thought that's what you were supposed to do is have perfect attendance. Um, but um, in college, that opened up lots of components. Lived in a commune for three years. Uh -huh. um, did all those things that the 70s, because I was in the 70 range, uh -huh. um, did as a, as a kid. Um, yeah. With the long hair, were there big mutton chop uh, sideburns? No, there was not. Okay. <laughs> Just trying to get the visual there. No, 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 no. <laughs> when I, when I got married, I had a Beatles-style haircut. Do you remember the car yeah. where you put a bowl over your head? And, yeah. And, yeah. And oh, I wore sweet. And a purple velvet suit. <laughs> that's, out, that's my era, too. Jeff, you're so, so out of that era. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was born in the sixties. Well, gosh, you know, you I mean, sixty nine, but you, you know, little sweeties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just a pup. So, yeah, the first the first year of college, you said your sophomore year is when uh, the sociology professors had the four year old that changed things for you. What well, was the first year for your year of college? Uh, pretty straight laced and straight laced. Took a Bible with me. Had a Bible in my hand every single class. Uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, wanted to go into elementary education because that's what I thought, again, um, that I wanted to do. Um, by the end of the first semester, I knew that was not what I wanted to do. Um, how did you know? They were saying things, and Jeff, I don't know how I knew this, um, but they were saying things that I thought were not appropriate for children practices and, and what you were supposed to do is, and even though I was very compliant at that thought, 
no, this isn't how I learned. Uh, and I don't think kids enjoy learning in that way. So by the end of the semester, I thought, nope, this is not what I want to, um, to do and moved into a different field. It, you, you, you've mentioned a couple of times that you were in those early years, you were a, a really good observer of people and situations. Is, is that maybe where that, that kind of vision that this, this, what they're teaching me isn't right came from, from your, from your observations all your life of what was going on with people and how people were learning? Yeah, I think so. Plus the fact that I volunteered in a Head Start program the summer before I went to college. And, and the person that was the teacher of the Head Start classroom was a really, really, really good teacher. And her practices did not reflect what I was learning in the first semester of college. And then realized, wow, I want to be more like that teacher in Head Start. Like what? Like what? Describe what, what was her practice. She allowed a lot of play. Um, she um, uh, talked with the children in a way that was uh, practical and made sense and, and what they enjoyed talking about. Um, she allowed a lot of outdoor play at that time. Um, and so I thought, yeah, this this is not only a good thing for children, it was fun for me. That, that was at a time when uh, Head Start was uh, a pretty new thing, huh? Yes, very new. And not all Head Start classrooms were like, because there were five in the building that I was in, and I was fortunate enough to be in what I considered to be the best one um, at that time and in that building. Um, and it was hard for me to leave that classroom, and I thought, this is the feeling that every child should have when they leave um, a class is uh, the memories of good memories that they had in, in the experience. This is kind of sidetracking from your specific journey, but I, I, I like, I'd like to grab a little bit of the history and your thoughts on this. How from, from that experience in an early version of Head Start to what you see and hear about Head Start as it looks in 2021, how, how has that changed? Is, is it essentially the same program or has it evolved? Well, you know, Jeff, that I'm pretty honest. So I'm going to say it is the pits. Um, what I see out there now, um, and, and, and part of that is not necessarily the teacher's fault. Right. Um, it's partly um, the expectation on a national level that's expected of Head Start families. Um, and I think that um, what I've observed now, and I do lots of presentations for Head Start, and I can't believe they still ask me, uh, <laughs> because I frequently say the opposite of what they're practicing. Um, and so, you know, their, their expectations of children now are very different than they were even 10, 15 years um, ago. And I'm afraid that they're moving in a direction that does not fit what I believe um, children need to have well and and they are not alone in the way absolutely that it's not head start per se it's the Correct. whole nation. yeah 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 big problem yeah and I think we're in a culture where we're afraid to let children be children yes yes I'm um, hoping the four school people I'm hoping you know that they 
the more naturalist are going to save us, to be honest, uh, because I don't see a lot of other practices um, that will save us uh, and make a good thing for, for children and families. Yeah, Forest yeah. schools and the unschooling movement are, are kind of maybe our last hope. That's what I'm thinking. It's a summer hill again. I keep yeah. thinking, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a summer hill atmosphere and culture um, that I think we need to fall back with. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, I find the American culture as a whole uh, <laughs> is very behaviorist oriented. Yes, uh, it's stuck in the 50s. Yeah, Alfie yeah. Cohn talks about it. You know, he always jokes that Skinner yeah. is dead. You know, he's gone. We, we have to stop teaching like Skinner Skinner wanted. But it's, it's very, very deep, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, it's so hard for teachers to actually understand the whole child. It's always, you know, pinpointing this behavior, how to get rid of it, that behavior, how to get rid of it. There's, there's never a whole child component there. Right. I taught Head Start for five years. Um, and during that time, it was called the Osprey team that would come out and visit your program to make sure that you followed. Well, I drove them absolutely crazy um, <laughs> because, you know, they would ask, where's your science area? Because that was one of the things they required. And I said, well, follow me. And so I took them to every area. <laughs> and said, this is my science areas. Uh, and they said, no, 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 you have to have an area. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. I just simply said, that's not going to happen. Then they wanted a library area. And I said, well, I don't have that, but I've got books in every area. Would you like to see that? No, no, no. You need a library area. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. So I lasted five years. <laughs> I gave it my best chance uh, and then said, bye. How old were you when that was happening? Wow, geez, I was in my... Let's see that I just got out of college. So I was in my late 20s, maybe 25, 26. So so teenage Dan was all about fitting in by time college is over. Dan is about I'm going to yeah. do things my way. Um, I, I want to dig into how more of that transition. So you you've decided that you're not going to be a man of the cloth. You've decided that elementary education isn't for you. You've got a couple of sociologists kind of pushing their four-year-old daughter at you and saying, take care of her. Did right. you, did you take that on? Absolutely. And um, what did that look like? Well, um, it, we would do walks, we would take walks, we would, you know, I did what she wanted to do, I essentially um, did. Um, and, and, but living with them um, was really, uh, he was an archaeologist and a sociologist, so um, I got to go on some digs. Uh, and it, it just created that, that that warm, comfortable feeling that I thought I needed. And then they started to do a research project on, um, oh, I want to call them flea market vendors, because they felt that there was a culture there that needed to be studied. And that's what led me into um, going into the commune um, aspect of, of life, uh, which I thought my mother was going to die of a heart attack um, when she found that out. What, what did your father think of that? My father, remember, we didn't have a relationship. So, so it didn't, didn't really matter. 
Well, and not only that, he assumed I was going to do something crazy. Always. Um, and he was right. Between the two, he was the, the person that really saw me, um, I think, for a, a long time uh, in terms of that process. But yeah, I became really rebellious um, at that point. I remember putting up, I was doing pickets uh, against the Vietnam War because everybody was. Uh, plus, it was a war that shouldn't have happened. And I was arrested twice and... and um, you know, those kinds of overnight in the jail um, component. And and it just became a world that I thought, this is not only um, interesting, it's a world that I felt comfortable in. Well, you I did before, I just did. Go ahead. You were an activist. Absolutely, yes. You lived on a kibbutz, which is like a commune. Right, right. Which led me into the kind of person I am now. Right. It felt it feels safe to shake people's bones. <laughs> it's good for them. Yes, right. And prior to that, I wouldn't even think about it because to me, you had to fit in. But then you had your bones shaken. Absolutely. Yes. And that created a culture that allowed me to um, be the person that I am now. Yeah, because I always think that, that one of the main tasks of a teacher is to give somebody a different option. Yes. You know, give them different choices. And, and that's, I mean, it's personal too. It's like I was also very compliant in the beginning, but then somebody opened my eyes or people opened my eyes to different ways of thinking. And it was so important. And so that for me is very important about education. Yes. I think one of the things that people don't know about me is during the Vietnam War, I, when I, uh, I dropped out of college for one year because I was too busy doing important things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I was drafted. So I chose to go to Canada uh, rather than to go to Vietnam War. And I helped create the underground movement uh, for males and females, mostly males at that time, because they were the only ones allowed in service um, to go to Canada if they wanted to, instead of the, if, if they chose to go to Canada and leave their families, leave everything. Um, and, uh, and I worked and I volunteered in a, uh, what they call First Americans um, Reservation uh, up in North Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, well, that changed again, another cultural component. It allowed me to to realize the mishaps that's occurring. Um, And it's important for me to understand that things need to change and it's not gonna change unless you help make it change. Um, And then there was amnesty created and I came back to the US and, and, got married and had a child, uh, essentially. And do you still carry your Bible? I don't even have a Bible, no. <laughs> <laughs> do not even have a Bible. And I'm a humanist. You're a humanist. Yes. So that's you, that you carry your Bible within. 
Absolutely. And if my mother was alive today, she would probably say, you're still preaching. Because <laughs> <For> sure. <laughs> a lot of my presentations are done in large churches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Actually, every time I'm in a sanctuary doing a presentation, I always look up, see, Mom? <laughs> well, in right. a way. Here I am. <laughs> I was worried we get struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my big fear. Well, so, early learning is a kind of religion. Yeah. 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 Well, it's something that, that needs evangelists, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what made you decide to drop back into college? Was it the wife and the kid, or did that happen before the wife and the kid, or? Uh, to get back into college? Yeah. I knew, I knew I needed some form of education to make it um, because being male and wanting to be in this field, I needed to prove uh, myself. And I think I might have told this story before, but I changed from elementary ed to um, child and family studies, uh, which was out of the home economics department. And in the building, they did not have a men's restroom where my classes were. <laughs> That's how far back, because men did not go. Uh, and when I look back at that, I thought, wow, I was really risk-taking even then. So sure. I stood in the women's restroom line, and within a few weeks, they had a men's restroom. Uh, in terms of Because <laughs> uh, they kept saying, you have to go in the next building. You have to, well, I had to pee. There's no way I'm going to rush to the next building. So um, I was responsible. Matter of fact, I thought they should have put Dan's room on the the bathroom wall. Sure. And and to, to, to some extent, since then, that's been your life. Because every time you go to a big conference, they take away the men's restroom. So Absolutely. Yes. And so I stand in the women's line. <laughs> Dan spent his whole career looking for some place to pee. Exactly. <laughs> and boy, when you stand in the women's line, it's really interesting how many women just scamper and leave <laughs> the I, line. Uh, and then it moves you forward. <laughs> I, I've, had, I, I've, I've had women walk into the men's room. Yes. You know, I, I'll be doing a keynote. And I'll, I mean, you got 15 minutes between sessions or whatever, and you run in, and and I, I'm just there, and they they're like, "Oh, you got nothing I haven't seen," and they'll they'll go right. grab a stall, and I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, it's, yes. a, it's a real weird world." So you're the you're the only one in that uh, that that program. I'm guessing the only male for four years. And what was that like? Kind of exciting because I like the attention. Uh huh. Uh, and at the same time, um, the classes that I really, really enjoyed and make me stay in college were the classes in that building. Um, and so I think um, that was what moved me forward. Matter of fact, one of the faculty members was going to be kicked out because she didn't have tenure or something of that sort. So I created a, a petition and, and did a walkout and all that kind of thing to keep her uh, as one of the instructors and we won. So I thought, hmm, this means there's possibilities out there, <laughs> which then created the shaky bones component of me. Uh, were, were there instructors that had your back as much as you had the back of that instructor? There were some instructors that really, really disliked me because I would question their lectures. Um, and in most cases at that time, you were not to question, you were supposed to listen. 
Um, and then there were faculty members that really, really liked me uh, because I was outspoken and, and, and created a climate that was different. Uh, and they seemed to enjoy that. Um, but yeah, there was, there was an equal amount of likes and, and dislikes uh, in the program. And where, where did the grades go? Did they go back up? Uh, all but one class, because I hated that class, so I skipped it because she, she lectured strictly from the book. And so I just read the book. But um, what was she, the class? Pardon? What was the class? That was um, family life, uh, food, something. Something relating to how food... Uh, support it was stupid <laughs> but how food related I'm thinking ah this isn't for me because uh, it re didn't really relate it related to health and nutrition not that that's not important but right. at that point I wasn't interested in that right right so she failed me how dare yeah. she well, yeah I didn't go to class and so Betsy was her name and, and that's the other thing I call teachers by the first name and you weren't supposed <laughs> to do that. But I said, you call me by my first name. So <laughs> did, well, did you know, you... I, lived in, I lived in Israel for 20 years and we call everybody by their first name. So it's yeah. very, very normal for me. I was very, um, I found it very difficult in America when I came and people kept calling me Miss Tamar and all this right. kind of stuff. Right. You know, when my daughter attended my, uh, preschool that I operated at that point uh, after I got out of college um, she you know everybody all the kids called me by my first name and so she did she did to this day she calls me Dan and people outside our family are absolutely shocked that I would allow my allow my daughter to call me by Dan and I'm thinking what do friends call each other they didn't call each other Mr. and Mrs. or by their last name, so. <laughs> Did the, 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 the college experience at, at that time, was it all in the classroom book lecture stuff or was there, was there opportunity to spend time with actual human children? There was a lab program in the building also and I volunteered the last two years of my college in the uh, lab program. And it was a half day program and it was college professors, children, that were in this program. And it was pretty, a pretty decent program. My job was to, then they created an, what, what they called an adapted program for the Chippewa Reservation. It was a large uh, Native American reservation. And my job was to go pick them up uh, and bring them because they had a hard time with attendance. And then I realized quickly why, because they live in a different culture and a different time zone. So I created, uh, I went up to the um, director and said, we're going to really need to float the time of when the program starts and ends. Um, and she couldn't understand that. Um, and I said, well, let's just give it a try. And, and, and it worked. So <laughs> at, at that time in the classroom with kids, how close were you to the version of to, to the 2020 version of you as far as your your practice and how you engaged with children it was pretty close um 
The difference was there was still a, a, an academic component uh, to the program. So uh, there were some things that um, were done in the cognitive um, area that I thought were not necessarily um, relevant, um, but it wasn't harmful. So I let it happen, essentially. Although you felt that it maybe it shouldn't be happening? Yes. Yeah. It, matter of fact, I brought it up several times because um, I'm always asking, why are, you, why are we doing this? <laughs> uh, and that's when I started the why um, questions in the field. Uh, you know, why are we um, doing this component and is this really appropriate? Uh, and that's what started the stimulus for that. Yeah. Uh, one of your favorite whys for me for the, in the last couple of years has been, why are we making uh, 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 moral issues out of developmental issues? Yeah. Were you, you were asking versions of that back then? Yes, yes. Well, because even then, cause my latest shaking bones is on swearing, whether or not it's actually bad or is it just part of communication, another language, um, which created a lot of shaking bones. <laughs> yeah. And back then I even, you know, was thinking, okay, there are some things that I think, you know, you need to get over. <laughs> well, it's so, it's so um, interesting to me because so many adults swear and, and yes. uh, they're so angry with children when they do. And yet their children are surrounded by violence in the society, whether it's words or actions, it, you know, you know, I'm yeah. not saying we should make children be violent, but it's, yeah. you have to at least understand that they're, they're, they're getting it from their people. Right. And that's when they started, when I noticed that people were turning developmental issues into moral issues. And as soon as they did that, then they did inappropriate things for children. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. yeah. So, you know, the swearing and the, uh, you know, the cussing and the, and the, uh, maybe acting out what some people call acting out behavior, I saw as natural. Yeah, um, I, I, it makes me so mad that acting out. Yeah. When people say they're acting out, because that means that they're saying that what children are doing and saying is an act, and it's right. not it's not authentic. Right. It makes or they'll say, you know, we don't allow hitting here, and I said. How can you not allow hitting? It's so natural. Despite <laughs> that, they never asked to be put into a group. Well, of course, they're going to hit. <laughs> That's being hit at home half of the Exactly. Them. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So so you were in, even even right out of college, you were on your path to being a troublemaker. Absolutely. And that and then I my daughter went Wait, to went, okay. Uh, He's not a troublemaker, Jeff. Oh, he's a troublemaker. No, 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 no. It's very important. But, you know, Take the bone. I don't view troublemakers negative. And, and I don't say it as negative. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, then, I'll just have to yeah. check. You know, maybe, maybe we ought to have that criteria of good teachers and the top should be troublemakers. <laughs> it should be in the job title. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> We have to clarify. <laughs> so many people see troublemakers as a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's so, because they we, turned it into a moral issue again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you, you're, you're working in a preschool after college. Are you are you just in classroom? Or are you doing administrative stuff, or is it just? Actually, I'm in, I I was um, after college. I got married. Um, we had a daughter, and then my daughter uh, was going to preschool, so I enrolled her into a parent-child cooperative nursery school, and that to me is the foundation of early childhood. Um, it was an experience where, uh, oh, by the way, the very first day that my daughter went to co-op nursery school, I was stupid and said to her, today's your first day, you're really, really excited. What do you think you wanna wear? Well, it was January and she picked out her Wonder Woman swimming suit. Uh, and put this on and I'm thinking, okay, here we go. So here we are walking to school in her Wonder Woman swimming suit with their coat on. And so when we got to the nursery school, all the parents there stay on the first day. <clears throat> and I said to Jennifer, you might want to leave your coat on, thinking that if she took the coat off, people were going to be shocked. No, no, she rips off her coat and throws it over in a corner and the parents' mouths all drop to the floor. And I said, what can I say? She likes Wonder Woman kind of thing. <laughs> but that was our very first experience on the first day of co-op and I was a parent. And so two years later, I liked it so much, I decided to apply for a job in co-op and, and became a teacher. And that's when a lot of the parents wanted their boys, because boys, I noticed at that time, especially, were having a hard time getting enrolled in a program, uh, especially if the boy was real active. Uh, and so parents started putting, so my classrooms were filled uh, with active boys. <laughs> um, and so people started coming to visit because they kept hearing about these active boys being allowed to do active things. Uh, and that's when I started to get noticed in the field and asked to do a presentation. And that's what started the whole presentation thing. And also started um, my understanding of how important families are to um, nursery and childcare and family daycare how important families are to that component. Because before that, I separated the two. Parents were one issue, kids were another. Exactly. And co-ops helped me realize, that, wait a minute, you can't do one without the other. So what, what, does, what does active look like? What did that look like in your classroom? Running a lot, climbing. I was the first person in our area to have a climber. Um, uh, it, uh, children were throwing things. Uh, we went outdoors a lot. Uh, we had lots of water. Um, uh, you know, those kinds of, which today I still think is, is valuable. Absolutely. And lots of blocks, mm -hmm. lots of blocks. Was, was there, what, what, what was licensing back like at the time, if it existed well, I, at all? I was fortunate because I knew the licensing consultant because she was in a class that I was in. So she kind of was prepared. What to expect. For, and, and she loved the program. So I was really fortunate. 
Um, and, she, <laughs> and as you know, I, I say frequently at workshops, the licensing consultant's not there every day. So do the things that you think are natural. <laughs> oh my gosh, you remind me of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when people tell me or say, we can't do this because licensing, I'm right. always on Facebook saying, but they're not there every day. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, when I was director of the child care centers at the University at Buffalo, um, I, it made me crazy rubber gloves all the time. And I understand why you have to have them, but sometimes you can't have time to put them on. And I used to say to the, to the teachers, you know, Jesus and Mother Teresa never wore rubber gloves. Right. But when the licensing person came, I called on the, on the intercom, rubber gloves, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. We had a swing that was like a Tarzan swing that would go across the sidewalk where the kids rode the trikes. And we weren't supposed to have a swing like that. <laughs> and so I would just wrap it around the tree. And here he'd come over and said, can I do the Tarzan swing? Not right now. The license is here. <laughs> and she was standing right next to <laughs> Uh, and I said, but she's going to be leaving soon. <laughs> oh, what we don't have to do. <laughs> so so what, what do you present about, Dan? Oh, there's <laughs> like lots. There's lots. I think what I'm noted for is um, the whole guidance area uh, with children. Um, I'm... Uh, I wrote a book titled Get Over It, Relearning Guidance Practices, because relearning is more difficult than learning, because you have to throw things away, too. Um, and, and I'm always saying to people, you're really going to have to get over that. Um, you're really going to have to get over that. So that's when I decided to, um, to write that book. Um, and I also do uh, presentations on the differences between boys and girls, and the whole idea of rough housing, uh, oh. rough and tumble play, because I think, and Jeff does that too. It's, it's part of the whole um, issue of how do we help kids, allowing them to be natural yes. in, in their experience. Um, yes. yeah, I, th I think a lot of your stuff revolves around empowering children yes. but also empowering caregivers on the other side of it is is i mean i mean dan for me dan's thing is hey everybody needs to have a little bit more power in their in their existence and yes. i think that's a yeah. that's a valuable yeah. thing what was that first presentation about and how did it go well you know what it was about the, it was non at that time it was titled non-sexist classrooms how to set up a non-sexist classroom um, and so I ended up more talking about rather than what, how to set it up is how do we let kids become kids? Um, and, um, it was a pack. I remember it's a pack room, uh, because I think I was one of the only male presenters, um, in that, in that, sorry, in that room or in that building, the conference. So it was really exciting to be part of that. At the same point, it was interesting uh, because people were wondering, did you, I heard them leaving saying, did you hear what he said? Uh, <laughs> and to me, that kind of statement is a real valuable statement because that says you're thinking about it, whether you go back to it or not. 
um, but you're at least thinking um, about it. But I was scared um, and, uh, but got the audience bug quickly. Um, and then the fear uh, removed and uh, I just started telling stories of real things, yeah. uh, which you know um, is the way to help people understand is to deal with real life happenings. Uh, and, and that's the first one. And then I started being asked after that to do several presentations. How, how many did you before somebody handed you a check at the end of the session? Oh, God, I think two years. <laughs> and, and how did that feel? Oh, I'm thinking people are paying for what I say. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Possible. You get the rush. You get the rush of the audience. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then you get paid for having that rush, which is right, kind right. Of not a bad gig to have if that's what you're into, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It took me the, the, the third book I'm working on, which is almost done, I keep saying that every, every month, is titled, <laughs> What the Hell, Where Did You Get That Idea? because in each section is a belief and then where did this come from and why why (laughs) and it's going to be great for staff and parent meetings is what i'm hoping yeah perfect perfect yeah yeah because talking to parents is so difficult sometimes to have them yeah yeah but you know it's my favorite group to talk with Mm -hmm. Because they take the agenda almost immediately. So I start out and then they ask a question and then I'm thinking, okay, they don't really want to see my PowerPoint slides. <laughs> uh, and they move towards realism. Uh, I've got this child who won't sleep. How do I help him? You know, how do I put him to sleep without drugging him? You know, <laughs> you know so it really is my favorite audience is the, the parent group. Yeah, yeah. Oh, how interesting, Dan. So, what are you going to keep on doing? I turned 72 this year. Oh, I've been in 2021. I'm sorry? In 21 or 20? December. uh, December 8th, turned 72. I'm going to be 72 in May. Hey, listen, I thought I was the oldest person. I said to Jeff, we might have to do more than one session. I'm <laughs> 72. <laughs> Component. But I'm still working and volunteering in a, in a program with children. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is it's, they have to help me get up off the floor. Uh, that's the real difference. <laughs> um, but I'm still practicing and still, um, still preaching. So how did that, oh, go ahead, Tamar, sorry. Still a minister. You know, it, what, what happens to us in childhood just seems to stay with us. It may be, it may kind of, we, we renegotiate it to fit yes. out who we are, but I think it's with us all the way. Well, you know what? I've been teaching for 38 years. I have been practicing every year to get people to stop teacher crap. 38 years, and they're still doing teacher crap. <laughs> what, what do you give us a quick give us a quick definition of Crete teacher crap? Oh man, uh, making a tie out of piece of paper and, and giving it to me for Father's Day. First what? of all, I don't wear a tie, <laughs> and second of all, I don't want a paper one. <laughs> or um, um, here's my favorite: 
a muffin tin flower at springtime. Oh my. When is the last time you've ever heard a child ask to make that? <laughs> Never <laughs> in my life have I had a child ask to do that. That's what I consider teacher crap. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's, uh, we could go on and on, Jeff, about so, that. So, so Dan, you're not a big fan of uh, taking the, uh, the infants and, and plopping them in orange paint and uh, popping their butts in the paper to make pumpkins at uh, Halloween time? Absolutely. I just love it. No. <laughs> but you know, the same thing is they think that feet painting is a creative experience for young children. I'm thinking, I don't think so. I don't think I've had a child ask to do that. Uh, if they did, I'd say, what do we need uh, to make that happen? Uh, but yeah, yeah. And my worst is when they ask questions about toddlers. What can we do to make toddlers interested in? I'm thinking, well, let them be toddlers, first of all. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we should go on the road together. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think part of it is the field is so new every year. Yes. The changing of staff. The huge turnover. So new each yeah. year. Because uh, I thought by now everybody's heard me, but yeah. you know, the audience is so new that it's amazing right. how many people have not heard the word, um, essentially. And like Jeff mentioned earlier, power is such an important component for everyone. And some people choose this field because they need power. And children, they think, are the easiest way to get it. So I'm on a campaign to ask them to please work at Walmart because they <laughs> get paid more. Because <laughs> uh, we tiptoed around this issue for so long. <laughs> yeah, one of the biggest things we could do for the profession is help people not come into the profession. Yeah. Absolutely, Jeff. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I got a question that I, I've actually heard from a somebody I know who's going to listen to this episode that that they were interested in, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask. Um, you got to the point in your your professional career where you spent um, some time working with Bev Boss, and um, and and her program, and and I since she passed a couple of years ago, not too long ago, I was wondering if you had any memories or thoughts or or things you wanted to talk on 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 the relationship and time and and her teaching and stuff because uh, she's still out there in the minds of of a lot of people in this profession. I was fortunate to not only know Bev as um, my mentor, but as a friend. Uh, we had a very close relationship. Um, and, you know, we met at a parent-child, international parent-child cooperative nurseries conference. She was presenting in one room. I was presenting in the other. We were taking a break. Uh, people were going to the bathroom. Bev and I met in the hallway. And Bev said, what are you talking about over there? Because I've had to stop a couple times to listen to you. And I said, well, I did the same thing. I stopped. And she said, how about we combine, so we actually combine the two workshops at that spontaneous moment um, and then presented lots of times uh, together after that. She ran a preschool program that is unlike anything I've seen. Um, and it's still running uh, without her. But um, she, again, created a climate that I thought was absolutely uh, essential 
for children and uh, didn't think twice about it. Uh, she was honest. Uh, people learned quickly that you cannot um, convince Bab to change. <laughs> um, and so then, and that's the component that I uh, really like. So we present, she would have good stuff for kids conference every year. And people from all over the world would come to this event and she invited me to be part of it. Um, and so I was fortunate to, um, to know her and to recognize her. And, and I still recommend her books uh, frequently to people. A little bit harder to find nowadays. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Well, uh, go ahead, Mark. I admired her so much because she really followed her heart. It, Absolutely. It's so hard to do that, you know. Yeah. And people would say, "Well, what's your curriculum design?" And she would always say, "The child is the curriculum." Yeah. And I'm thinking, over forty years ago, she said, "The child is the curriculum." Well, just before she died, she's still saying the child is the curriculum. And I keep thinking, and she would say the same thing. When are they going to get this? <laughs> I, was, I was just going to ask, when's everybody going to catch on? <laughs> yeah, and I think, it's, you know, part of it is the training programs that are out there. Um, there's lots of, and I taught at the college for several years, uh, you know, that they really are doing the cookbook method still, where this is what has to be done and follow these steps. Rather than saying, observe children, pay attention to what they need and stay out of the way. Yeah. I mean, look how quickly a semester would go by <laughs> if we just practiced that. <laughs> yeah, send in your money and here's the three things. I was going to say the colleges and universities aren't going to make a lot of money if you, right, if right. you can sum, up, sum it up in a, in, a, in a sentence. Right, right. That's the other thing. When I taught at the college, I asked for tables, round, and they said, well, what about students? Aren't they going to cheat? I said, well, I hope so. <laughs> oh, I drove the college nuts too. <laughs> So how long did you, how long did you, you teach at that level? 27 years. And did oh. you, did you, did it evolve? Did you, do you feel like you made a dent? Do you feel that the, uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess well, you kind of just shared them, but. I was teaching preschool at the same time and the, the, the faculty union said I could not do that because I was a union member and they didn't want me to. Um, get the salary that the preschool teacher uh, was getting. And I said, uh, then you don't want me. So the dean fought for me and kept me on. Um, so I, I felt really supported by uh, the dean. And uh, what I noticed is that there are people who still contact me saying I was a student in your class and here's what I'm doing. And here's the thing that I learned the most just to let kids be kids. And that's the moment when you think, aha, you, you made a difference in terms of lives. Um, and that's which, a good thing. That's a good thing. Which college you taught at, Dan? Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I was the CDA representative, so all of the Head Start people in that area went through 
me. And what I like tomorrow is, is they came just expecting a CD, CDA and they got bugged. And they wanted <laughs> to get their associate and some of them even their bachelor's degree. Yeah. That's it. Not that a college education makes a person, but it helps support them, I think. And it gives them an option. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And now the person that is running my program, the program I was in, hired a male who was my student. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So now I'm seeing a male in the program uh, following some of the same practices um, that I taught. Oh, that's that's it. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We and I drove to college not because they had open because we had to do tests. So I said, okay, I'll do a test. So I did open book tests <laughs> where they had to find the answer in the book. Uh, if they didn't like the grade, they could take it over. Uh, <laughs> and they're sitting at those round tables, cheating off of each other. So exactly, <laughs> if, right. if you failed one of those, it was it was uh, it was by choice, huh? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so I continue so- to press the buttons. So Dan, with, with all those years of experience in the classroom with children and preparing people to work in this field, um, two questions. One, what still frustrates you the most? What's, what's, the, what's your one hot button as far as early learning is concerned in the world we're living in now? Wow. I think adults worried about children learning um, is one of my big hot spots. Uh, uh, rather than looking at how to help kids feel good about themselves, then learning will take place. Um, so we, we've done just the opposite. We look at what children will learn first and then maybe think about how they feel about that learning later on. That's a hot spot. Uh, for me, it's, it should be just the reverse, um, helping kids. You know, my poster, my office says my job is to help children put up with the crap. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that that's uh, an important component. And we it's perfect. It, it's a hot spot uh, for me. We're so interested in the crap that we forgot what it takes to feel successful. Um, and part of it is is looking at how do I feel about myself? And that's what the early childhood experience should be for, for children. Yeah, Does that my, make sense? My, my, what I call guru, uh, Bruce Perry, always says, you know, it's, oh, math and all that, it's important. But the most important is relationships, relationships, relationships. Absolutely, that's- yeah. Matter of fact, lately I've been pushing the idea that reading a book has nothing to do with reading the book has to do with relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So stop reading in a group of 18 children. You know, I I can't, I say all the time, when I read and I read every night before I go to bed, I don't call my neighbors up and have them come over and get in bed with me. It's stupid. (laughs) Stop at every sentence and say, so what does that mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Bev Boss didn't do. She would, you know, small clusters and, the closer they got to her, the better she liked it. Nobody had to sit in a 
stupid triangle or whatever that is. <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't, you know, I don't sit that way. Why would we ask kids to sit like that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and if we if we actually paid attention, it, it's really clear. It's easy to see that when you focus on relationships, 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 all the learning just it, it's hard to stop them yes. from learning. Yes. And and I think that's when we when we were about language and climbing and throwing and all those hot button issues. What we're really doing in those moments is we're stopping them from yeah. from learning things. We're putting the brakes on, and it's yeah. it's hard to get away from that for some people. When and Jeff. When you asked me at the very beginning, I, you know, my life history, I think what made me the person I am today is nothing to do with the learning component. It has to do with the relationships I was able to have early with others. And then even in college, experiencing the relationships. Uh, and it continues um, to make my life better, the relationships I've built with Are people. Are there any any people that that kind of fall into that category that we we that you didn't mention in the stories that those those pivotal people that kind of led you to who you are? <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of Lisa Murphy. <laughs> Aren't we all? Um, not because Lisa, because Lisa's a lot younger than me, um, but. I look for people that know the stuff, but also know how to present it in a way that help people see it. Uh, I also am really fond of some of the classics um, that have that passed on. Um, matter of fact, I'm always saying they didn't ask me to die. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want them to, to, to die because, you know, some of the people that uh, uh, Heim Gennath, the Bruno Benaheims, and, and, and those kinds of individuals helped me uh, with the foundation that I think is really um, important in the field. Yeah. Heim Gennath changed my life. Pardon? Heim Gennath changed my life. Yes, yeah. In a simple way, don't you think so? Yes. It wasn't uh, a lot of words to... Um, to make me um, be better, um, but made it just natural in terms of the um, component. Um, made it I, I, I'm worried, Jeff, that I'm looking for people. I'm looking for people to help. I've been doing more presenting with people uh, that I think do good things in the classroom because sometimes people who do really good things in the classroom are really doing good things and they're busy. Um, so they don't get out there and help people see what's appropriate for children. So I'm pushing people um, into, and sometimes it helps if they present with somebody else um, to look at um, creating a, a, another uh, culture out there um, because when I die, when other people uh, die, you know, who's, who's going to do it? Uh, and I, to be honest, I worry a lot about that. Not because I'm the best person um, to speak on the behalf of children, um, but I, there are fewer people out there doing that. Yep. 
and, and that was that was one of the final questions I was I was going to ask you, Dan, is about about mentoring and 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 leading, and supporting and maybe apprenticeship type things. How do we prepare people not only to be in the classroom but to take on that role that that you took on as presenter? And um, I'm 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 guessing you've done some stuff with a a future interviewee on this show. We've got her on the schedule. Um, when when I think about people like that that you're thinking about, I think about people like Keisha Reed. Yes. Um, and yeah. um, the, because she's got this amazing program right. that when I visit, I get lost in time there and yeah. having having her uh, in a position where she can share that more effectively with people. So what are your thoughts on how we how we bring those people along and nurture them and support them? I, and find I them. They recognize themselves as a good uh, facilitator in a classroom, um, but they haven't thought that they could be a good facilitator of adults. Uh, and so helping them notice that you can't do one without the other. I'm a real believer in professional development for um, adults and people like Keisha and Amy Ahola, you know, people who are actually really doing really, really good stuff um, in the classroom um, need to get out there and, and help uh, and so I, I think it's important that we start gathering those people together um, and and creating that culture of support um, so that they they can do it. Wonderful. Wonderful. It, 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 it's, it's kind of challenging in the world we live in for to encourage people to speak up about those kinds of things where we live in a world with social media where you say the wrong thing and everybody or you voice an opinion that's different from the norm um and and people jump down your throat you got you got to build up a certain level of uh of rhino skin yeah. to be willing and able to do that and I, and i can totally understand why some people don't want to put themselves out there in the in the the social media culture that we have now Right. I decided because I'm 72, I don't have to care anymore. <laughs> it's easier for me. It's easier. And so I'm on Facebook and I'm asking questions. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, what the hell? Because uh, <laughs> that's my favorite statement. But I think part of it is looking at, we have to help people realize not to depend on what other people say yeah. about them or with them. Yeah. Uh, and you're right, it creates, a, you have to create a shell. Um, but at the same time, if you know that you're really good at what you're doing, it's easier to not care what others. And I think the support mechanism for them are crucial yeah. in getting them to talk and to preach and to, um, and I think that's what's lacking uh, is the support system that says, um, you know, Jeff Johnson thinks my program is really good, or Tamar thinks I'm really saying, or Dan thinks, can you believe it? So I'm often acknowledging those people who are doing good things. Yeah. 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 Um, listeners, if you uh, want a what the hell t-shirt, you can go to danieljhodgins.com and click over to Dan's store and you can get yourself a what the hell t-shirt. He, he likes the phrase so much, he's put it in a t-shirt. Or, or, or did, your, did your daughter build your site? Yes. I yes. don't know how to do that stuff. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. And every, every time I go to your site, I, I see something I need to improve on mine. She, she, <laughs> she does amazing stuff. Um, so Dan, any 
any bits and pieces of you that uh, kind of inform and created who you are that we haven't that we haven't touched on that we might have glossed over or missed? I think we covered most of it. I think part of it is I became excited about the world when I recognized um, that I knew something and that um, I was willing to share that. Um, so sometimes that's what people need to, to, to get excited about is I know what's good for kids and I should be able to help them understand it. Tamar, we haven't made Dan cry yet. Do you have any probing questions? <laughs> I'll hold <laughs> that boss question. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. It's just been such a pleasure, Dan, because I, I, I so much um, agree with so many of the things that you've said, and I have had very similar experiences. I have had, of course, a very different childhood, but very, very similar experiences and uh, pet peeves like you have. Uh, so it's been really wonderful for me to speak to you. Good for you too. You know, good that I'm meeting you too. But I, I think part of it is what I, what I enjoy is the fact that I was able to figure out that even the bad things that happened in my life um, created an avenue where I knew I didn't want to do that or be that. Yes. Where sometimes that's hard for people to, they get stuck, they get sucked into uh, the bad thing. And I think part of it is looking at how do you turn that into making it better for you? Yes, people get stuck in bitterness instead yes. of you know, hope and, and uh, redemption, actually. Yes, yeah. yeah. Everybody wants to be acknowledged in some way. Not praised, but everybody wants to be acknowledged and, um, and recognize what they're good at because uh, I've never heard anybody say I want to be recognized for my what I'm bad at but now, now I'm thinking oh that's probably what I'm being recognized for <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's my latest Jeff had Amy and I do a podcast um, called Shaking Bones and I will never forget the one we did on called The Untouchables which is on uh, death, sex, and masturbation. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought the world was going to just go flat in its face, but I was fortunate to have Amy with me who didn't care either. <laughs> so can you imagine the two of us talking about, well, of course kids are going to masturbate. It feels good. <laughs> Uh, every time I'd get an episode, I'm, I'm like, "Oh, what's this one going to be?" And, right. and I couldn't wait to I couldn't wait to get it posted. Uh, listeners, I'll put a link those episodes uh, with Amy and Dan talking about uh, masturbation and throwing and cleanup time and, and everything else are, are still available. I'll put the link in the uh, the show notes to this episode if anybody wants to to go back and fill their ear holes with more Dan. Uh, and again, it's DanielJHodgins.com is the website, and you can find Dan's blogging there. There. you can find the book get over it and boys and uh, when does the when does the new one you're about to finish yeah, up every I'm month going to the publisher next month so is that are you you doing it through a publisher are you self-publishing or i'm still self-publishing yeah excellent yeah. excellent that's yeah. the that's the way to do it and uh i'm, I'm guessing it's going to be a, a digital version or are you going to be is there going to be a hard copy too both excellent yeah. excellent i have to smell a book taste a book Turn yeah. the pages. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're going to have the neighbors over to read to them, um, exactly. you got to have that hard copy. That makes it a lot <laughs> Right. <nicer. laughs> 
<laughs> Any final things before we wrap up tomorrow? No, just this was so much fun. Uh, it was delightful. More than Thanks fun. Thanks so much for inviting me. And More thank you for making the time for us. Hey, listeners, this has been Early Learning Journeys. We'll be back with another episode in about two weeks because that's kind of the schedule we kind of keep. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing the show with a friend or an enemy. We don't, we don't, we're going to make any judgments. <laughs> Share it with anybody who think might listen. They don't have to be a friend. Back soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Excellent. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.